1: and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Hosting this episode with me is our firm's chief investment officer, my dad, Bill Smead. Dad, thanks for doing this with me. Are you ready to have some fun today?
0: I am. What could be more fun than going back into the 1800s?
1: We are going to discuss one of the most interesting and unexpected capitalists of the 19th century. Joining us is Greg Steinmetz to discuss his recently published book, American Rascal. How Jay Gould Built Wall Street's Biggest Fortune. Um, To give our listeners a little background on Greg, uh, Greg is a Colgate University grad with degrees in history and German. He also earned a master's degree in journalism uh, from Northwestern University, one of the strongest journalism programs in the country. He spent the early part of his career as a journalist for the Sarasota Herald Tribune, the Houston Chronicle, and Newsday. He then served as the bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal in Berlin and London. Greg is now a securities analyst at Ruane, Cunniff, and Goldfarb, the manager of the illustrious Sequoia Fund. Um, so, Greg, it's great to have you join Bill and me today.
2: Thanks for having me, Cole.
1: Um, first off, uh, our, our audience and our investors know that we've studied a lot of the history of the Sequoia Fund and its performance over the years. I was uh, mentioned to Greg before we started that I gave a presentation at our Smead Investor Oasis this last year, where we studied the underperformance of various funds and managers, and, and Sequoia Fund was one of those that we we studied. Um, It's underperformance to understand great long-term track records. Um, You are the first person from Ruane that we've ever spoken with, however. So I consider this an honor to have you on the podcast today. Um, Thanks for the chance to talk about your writing. Uh, First question would be, what what, what inspired you to write this?
2: Well, as every journalist wants to write a book. So when I was the Berlin Bureau Chief of the Wall Street Journal, I started working on a book about a guy named Jacob Fugger, who was a mm-hmm. banker during the Renaissance, during the times of you know Columbus and da Vinci. And I was working on that because he was, his name in Germany is known, like the name Rockefeller is over here, but no one in the States had ever heard about him. So I was working mm-hmm. on that book. And in the middle of that, I ended up leaving journalism. I got a job offer here, which I was excited about. And after leaving, it took me another 15 years to finish the book because I was you know, doing it on on nights and weekends and also studying for the CFA and all sorts of other things. But anyway, I enjoyed that process so much, writing a book that I thought I'd do another one. And I got interested in this fellow Jay Gould because like Jacob Fugger, the subject of my earlier book, it was a name that some people might have heard of but really didn't know any anything about, uh, including people with whom I work with, people like yourselves who are in the business, Everyone's heard about Vanderbilt, about Rockefeller, about J.P. Morgan. There just wasn't that much information out there uh, on gold. And as I started to study him, I, I discovered, boy, he is not only the biggest robber of the barons, meaning he was mm-hmm. the most corrupt of any of them, uh, but he might also have been the most talented, and also I think the most interesting. So it was a perfect subject for a book and. As I started researching, uh, I became more convinced in that thesis.
0: I'm already looking forward to the Fuger book because in college, the, that period of time was, a, was of great interest of me, that uh, Renaissance time. Uh, let's set the stage for Americans to understand the ethos of people in America in the late, mid to late 19th century. Since you touched on this in your introduction, what were the views of competition and regulation at that time?
2: This is one of the things that really stunned me. But we live in the world where you can't turn around without having to comply with some rule. As you know, in the securities business, uh, if you want a Series 7, you have to submit your fingerprints as if you're a, a common criminal. Uh, all your emails <laughs> are, are free to be looked at by the SEC. There are 40,000 rules on the books governing financial regulation. There are all these agencies. Mm. It, it's, it's mind-boggling. And, you know, leaving aside whether that's appropriate or not, just the the volume of it, as I said, it's overwhelming. And in gold's day, there's absolutely nothing. You wanted to trade on inside information, fine. If you're the CEO of a big company and you want to award the contract for printing or something else to your brother-in-law, fine. I suppose you can do that now, but you'd have to disclose it, and that would be a red flag. But in those days, you didn't have to disclose anything. You wanted to pump up a stock and and praise its prospects at the same time you were selling it, go ahead. Uh, same, on, same on the way up. Uh, you know, paint a bad picture and buy the stock. That's exactly what Gould did when he acquired uh, the Manhattan Elevated, which is the precursor to the New York subway system. He owned the New York World newspaper. He flooded its pages with bad news about how the Elevated was going to go out of business and cut the stock price by two-thirds with these stories that they weren't backed by anything. Other newspapers weren't following the stories because they weren't true. But he managed to scare other investors out of their stock and was able to buy the thing for a song. Um, so the, just the lack of regulation is what created the opportunity for Gould to do what he did. He was such a smart guy. He would have thrived in any environment. But if you look at the context of how he made his money, it was by exploiting the fact that it was lawless. Uh, do you think the invisible hand worked better then than it does now? You had booms and busts, which were maybe more severe than what you have now. Uh, the gold survived and exploited, I think, several uh, recessions during his time. One of them was what they call the long recession of 1873. It lasted for seven years. It was the biggest recession, probably even a depression, that the country had ever seen. Eventually, things righted themselves without government intervention. The depression righted itself not because of government intervention, but because of World War II. So yeah, the invisible hand, um, it functioned more quickly. I would say in those days, uh, even though it took forever to get out of that long recession, prices would adjust quickly. Now there are safeguards in place, uh, deposit insurance, uh, wage support uh, programs like the TALF program that guaranteed securitizations. So the invisible hand still does its work, its work, but it doesn't. The pricing mechanism doesn't work as quickly.
0: How about teaching us a little bit about? Gould's upbringing and, and how that got his life off on a certain track.
2: Yeah, well, Gould grew up dirt poor in the Catskills, about 100 miles uh, upstate from New York City. His father was a, a dairy farmer who made cheese that he sold in New York City and Albany. He had a tragic upbringing. His mother died when he was four. The only thing he remembers about her is kissing her cold lips when he went to say goodbye to her on her deathbed. He was raised by his six older sisters, two of whom died of tuberculosis. His father remarried a couple times. Those women died within a year of being married to the guy. He became an alcoholic. He was abusive. I think what motivated Gould to make a lot of money is he wanted to protect his own family from uh, suffering the hardships that he suffered himself.
0: You you said he had a hard time slowing down, uh, an inability to slow down.
2: What do you mean by this? From a very young age, very young, Gould worked himself to the point of exhaustion. Uh, he would do his homework, uh, getting up, studying by candlelight, making sure he answered every problem perfectly. As soon as he was able, he got himself he taught himself surveying and got his got a job with a surveyor, doing maps and uh, and property records, uh, again, just working himself to exhaustion, spending you know, weeks on end out in the cold, sleeping under the stars, doing whatever it took to make money, while at the same time also doing his schoolwork and giving himself a, a wonderful education uh, just by virtue of his determination. And he continued this throughout his life. He just worked and worked and worked and ultimately Uh, It's what killed him. He was always suffering from stomach pain. Uh, He uh, wasn't getting enough sleep. He was vulnerable to illness. And whereas Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, and Carnegie lived to be uh, very old men, Gould died when he was 56.
1: You teach your readers about Zadok Pratt in the book. Um, Who was Zadok, and
2: why was he so important to Gould? Well, Zadok Pratt was probably the, the richest man in New York during the 1850s and 60s, he had a tanning business where he took uh, cowhides, some from you know, as far away from, from Argentina and Uruguay, and would tan them uh, for sale to bootmakers and others in New York City. What, what Pratt did, like others did, but less successfully, is they would boil hemlock bark the bark from hemlock trees. Mm -hmm. Upstate New York was full of hemlock groves. He built what was then the biggest hemlock factory in the country and uh, was looking to expand that operation after he exhausted all the hemlock trees around his factory. Gould, because of his surveying work and because of uh, some some family members who told him what was going on in the Poconos, uh, learned about a hemlock grove in the Poconos, he convinced Pratt, who he had gotten to know through his surveying work, to go to the Poconos with him to inspect the trees. Pratt liked what he saw, and he entered into a deal with Gould where, in return for the labor, uh, Pratt would put up all the money, and Gould would, and the two of them would split the profits 50-50. And that got, the, the significance of that, really, is that got Gould onto Wall Street, because, Tanning hides were traded in New York City in an area called the Swamp, which is exactly where Wall Street is today. By visiting mm-hmm. the swamp, by learning about the buying and selling of goods, not just the manufacture of goods, he learned that there is a lot of money to be made as a middleman without taking much risk to, with one's own capital. Uh, the same thing was going on with stocks and bonds, as he observed during his many visits. And as he told his father that he was going to leave the Poconos and come to New York to learn about the smoky world of stocks and bonds. And again, he educated himself and uh, became a very adept stock picker.
1: In your book, it comes out that that's kind of the pivot because he goes from making money from his work, to your point about him exhausting himself earlier, to making money on his decisions, which I think was a very interesting um, kind of time for him. Um, Gold had to buy back Pratt. Uh, with money he didn't have, though. Um, he And he was willing to risk it all, as you pointed out in your story. This happened with a new partner, Charles Loop. Um, explain why he needed Loop, and in many ways, this backfired not long after.
2: Well, Loop was one of the biggest uh, tanning brokers in the city. He had capital. Gold had a falling out with Pratt because uh, Pratt wanted to Uh, introduced some mechanization that Gold thought was just slowing things down. Pratt liked to experiment. Gold just wanted to make money as quick as he could. Uh, Then there was a recession that set in. It uh, really trashed the price of leather, and Pratt wanted out. Gold was done with Pratt. Gold went looking for another partner, and he finds this this Charles Loop character. uh, Where that... Fell apart was, Loop decided that uh, Gould was was too shifty for him. He didn't really trust him, and he wanted to have to make all the money on the tannery himself. He decides that he's going to seize the tannery by force. And I mentioned before this was the Wild West days of Wall Street. Here's a good example of it. Gould went to his lawyer, said, "Okay, this guy's going to take by force the tannery. What do I do? You know, can I sue him? What what should I do?" He said. You go up there yourself. You're the one whose name is on the deed. You are legally entitled to defend it and fight for it using any means necessary. Gold raised a small army of employees up there who are loyal to him, attacked uh, Loop and his allies in in their stronghold uh, in the tanning factory, chased them out of the place, and retook the tannery. And it, it made news because, you know, Gunshots were fired, people were hurt, and, uh, and Gould and, and, and his adversary were both quoted about you know, how this was a, a, a bloody gun battle.
1: Yeah, and this really reinforced, I think, in, in your story, in my mind, it reinforced the idea that he shouldn't be in the operating business world anymore, because if he had to do stuff like this, why? Um, and it really kind of pushed him to his day in the sun, which was obviously, like you pointed out just a, f- a few
0: minutes ago, um, stocks and bonds. New York was all in for the Union in the Civil War, but possibly not for the best reasons. They loved the money the war created. Explain what Lincoln had to pay in interest versus corporates at the time.
2: I think, think the government had to pay 7% and corporates paid 5 So there's a mm-hmm. lot of money to be made by investing in, in treasuries. Sovere- sovereign risk. <laughs> sovereign risk. But that assumed that the, the Union wins the war and can pay it back. Uh, that wasn't a sure, sure thing, particularly in the early days of the war. And the, the value of these bonds, the price of these bonds, you know, fluctuated all over the place. I, I heard Soros bought those bonds. <laughs> he probably just uh, kidding. shorted just kidding. them first. He, he knew ahead of time who was going to win at he, Gettysburg, he, probably.
0: Interest in the stock exchange also picked up, particularly in railroad stocks.
2: Was this just the animal spirits from the post-Civil War boom? It was... Because to build a railroad you needed a lot of money, so that created an opportunity for uh, for stockbrokers to to float issues of railroads, and you, you couldn't. It would have been very difficult to to build something like the Union Pacific Railroad on your own. Not only did you need the government to give you the land, but just to you know, buy all the steel to to make the track, to to pay all the workers to lay the track. These these were projects that. The country and I suppose the world had never seen things of this magnitude before. So you needed a, a thriving uh, capital markets with deep liquidity. And that's what that's what gave rise to um, the modern Wall Street. Prior to that, you could fund, you, know, you could build a little factory just out of, you know, money you had in the bank and you made as a farmer. But you couldn't do that anymore when you were building, you know, massive it's- national networks.
0: Sounded to me a lot like uh, Craig McCaw sending people out to buy cellular systems. Uh, Gould meets his wife Ellie, who came from a well-to-do family that lived in the Murray Hill area of Manhattan. Did her family bring Gould any advantage in his new profession as an investor?
2: I think it brought him connections. Yeah, uh, and it it also introduced Gould to uh, you know some sources of funding. Uh, it it didn't hurt him, but to, to say that Gould, you know, married into wealth, uh, that, that doesn't apply at all. Uh, Gould, Gould made his money just by being smarter than everyone else and being more ruthless than anyone else. Um, what, what, it, what it did, it, it complicated his life in a way in that she was a social climber. I didn't know if you've seen this. I think it's a Netflix series, uh, The Gilded Age. And the lead character in that show is a guy named George Russell. And more than anyone, that's patterned after Gould. And the mm-hmm. narrative tension in that story is about uh, the Russell family's effort to, to crack the elite social circles of New York and get invited to Lady Astor's parties. That's what Ellie Gould wanted. She wanted to, to break in with the Astors. And unlike in the show, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but uh, the Goulds did not succeed. The Astories looked their, down their noses at, at them. They were nouveau riche. They didn't want any part of them. But because Ellie had you know, children, she wanted to marry off into society. She really wanted to break in.
1: As a Warner Brothers Discovery shareholder, I, I think we have to know that.
0: I feel the same way about New York that Gould did. He, he, he runs into the Rutland and Washington Railroad convertible bonds around this time. He had a view as an investor. How did he see it, and what did he do to extract value
2: in his investment? Yeah, we were talking about how he wasn't, he wasn't an operator, or at least it, it wasn't as interesting to him as you know, buying and selling securities. But in that case, he, he bought the bonds at $0.10 cents in the dollar because he had a sense that he could improve it by taking charge of the railroad himself, finding efficiencies, finding new customers, and that's exactly what happened. So not only did he make out on the bonds, but there was also some value in the equity, and, and he was able to to sell it for a, a nice profit, which became the nest egg that funded his next adventure, which was the Erie Railroad.
1: Educate us on the players and the situation that came with the first Harlem Corner.
2: Okay, the Harlem Corner, and this is, this is a... a a story that they talk about in the in the Gilded Age series that it didn't involve mm-hmm. gold. It was, yep. it was Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt wanted Vanderbilt owned a railroad that came down Park Avenue and stopped at what's now Grand Central. He wanted to extend it down to Broadway where everyone worked. Uh, to do that, he needed the city council to approve it. The city council, because they were, they were a bunch of crooks, they came up with the brilliant ideas that said, okay, we'll buy stock in the Harlem and grant the approval and then sell the stock uh, after we give the approval, but would go farther than that, would short the stock and then take away the permission to extend the railroad. So it would make money both ways. Well, Vanderbilt was smarter than they were, and he realized that if he bought up enough of the Harlem stock, he could create a short squeeze. There just wouldn't be any stock for them to buy. So when it came Mm -hmm. time to uh, short the stock, revoke the permission, they did that. And they found that there just wasn't any stock left to buy. And they didn't know. One thing about short selling is you can suffer infinite losses. And Vanderbilt squeezed them to the breaking point, bankrupted some of them, and taught the council a valuable lesson. Uh, That was the first Harlem corner. And to me, what's really interesting about that it happened not just once, but twice. The next year, the legislators up in Albany decided what well, they wanted to get in on this. But this time, they would uh, shield themselves from a short squeeze by uh, making sure there's enough stock out there. Well, they, their calculations were wrong, and Gould did the same thing to the legislature that he did to the city council.
1: Yeah, the first chart on the corner. Um, in fact, uh, we just, uh, Greg. I don't know if you've read the book, "The Revolution That Wasn't," um, that was recently published. Uh, but it talks about the whole meme, you know, uh, meme craze in the early twenty one, and it's a wonderful read. But um, I, I, in that book, they talk about the Volkswagen Infinity squeeze back in 08, and as I was reading your book, I could just see tones of t- early twenty one or the Volkswagen saga going, you know, through what Vanderbilt was doing. Um, one thing I wanted to pull up about Vanderbilt, because um, you talked about a Nicaraguan deal that he had tried to sell a business, and the injuring um, party, or the party they were selling it to ended up backing out of the deal. Um, and he said, and I'm going to quote this, because it reminds me of later what we saw in Gould in your book, I won't sue you, quote, quote I won't sue you for is too slow. I will ruin you. You said he was as good as his word, end quote. That was, yeah, that was Vanderbilt. And, but but I, I say that because that really sets the stage. Vanderbilt's ways and means kind of set the stage for how Gould would conduct himself with people that he disagreed with in the end. Isn't, isn't he just providing the roadmap for Gould at a later date in his career?
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, Gould was never a, a partner of Vanderbilt's, but he watched his every move. And, you know, he absorbed mm-hmm. the lessons of the master. Um, and, yeah, Goldwood was ruthless when it came to destroying his opponents. And uh, some people look back at that and say, oh, he was just an, an, evil, uh, an evil guy because he, uh, you know, showed no mercy. But the fact is he was playing with, with other big boys who were trying to do the same thing to, to him that they were doing. Uh, that he was doing to them, so I liken it to sure. you know people sitting around the poker table. They agree to play the game, and you know you, you take your chances, and if you lose, you lose. And um, so those who messed with Gould, yeah, they suffer the consequences.
1: So then you get off to the Erie Railroad and Gould's interactions with the Erie. Um, j- can you explain what was unique about the Erie Railroad just for the business that it was?
2: Well, the Erie Railroad was the first railroad that linked the Great Lakes to the Atlantic Ocean. And that was important because the grain was was in the Midwest. And by creating this route that was a lot more efficient than the Erie Canal, they were able to to bring grain to New York and uh, do it at a, at a very uh, attractive price, uh, not only for for the U.S. markets, but also for international markets. So the Erie Railroad was a you know, vital uh, transportation link. There was another railroad in New York State, the New York Central. Vanderbilt owned that. He wanted to monopolize New York rail traffic by buying the Erie. Um, and I, I can tell you, should I just go into the whole Erie story?
1: Yeah, that'd be great because obviously you, you're going to probably get into how creative Daniel Drew got in your
2: story. Okay, well, the, the other player in the drama is a guy named Daniel Drew. Drew was the one who, who was the treasurer of the Errora Railroad, but, but he effectively controlled the thing. He didn't get involved in operations, but he was very clever in making money by manipulating the stock. So hmm. for the benefit of himself and other board members, he would do things like talk up the stock uh, when he was short-selling it and then do something like cut the dividend uh, when he wanted to drive the price down. And he would just do this uh, all the time. And uh, it was likened to you know, Drew having a yo-yo. He could just pull the string and, and make Erie stock go one way and then let it go and have it go the other way. Uh, Vanderbilt didn't like this. Uh, he wanted to, to control Erie, and he also wanted to bring stability for pricing into the market. And if Drew was doing mm-hmm. things like slashing rates to make the stock go down, that didn't help the competitor. Uh, which is the New York Central. So there's this fight that breaks out between Drew and Vanderbilt, with Vanderbilt trying to take control of the railroad, Drew wanting to keep it for himself and his selfish purposes. Gould steps into the middle of this by buying up proxies. As you know, the nice thing about proxies are uh, they they don't cost much, they don't give you any economic interest, but they do give you voting rights. Gould got enough voting rights to put himself on the board he could have gone either way. He could have gone the Vanderbilt route and made money by advancing the, the monopolistic effort that Vanderbilt had going, or he could go with Drew and be the guy with the yo-yo. He sided with Drew, and he was able to grab a hold of the thing by, uh, it gets complicated, but the the way to go, to, uh, reduce Vanderbilt's interest would be to just dilute the heck out of the stock by printing more stock. Uh, Vanderbilt got an injunction against printing the stock. Uh, Gold printed it anyway, unbeknownst to Vanderbilt, uh, broke the law, uh, and flooded the market with stock. Vanderbilt couldn't get enough of the stock. It went to the New York legislature, where Gold and Vanderbilt were trying to pass a law to uh, expressly prohibit the printing of stock, and Gould was fighting the other way, and they're, they're bribing legislatures back and forth. And uh, it, it ends up that that there's an arrest warrant out for Gould and for Drew and for Gould's buddy, Jim Fisk, who is uh, Gould's muscle in some of these capers. They decamp to Jersey City. Uh, Vanderbilt sends thugs after them to bring them back. The New Jersey police and Militia side with Gould and Drew and Fisk, and they, there's fights down at the docks, and it's really messy. But when, what ends up happening, to make a long story short, is Gould is able to get control of the railroad by uh, giving Vanderbilt some of his money back, but it cost him so much that Erie is left with nothing but an empty shell. But he, he still manages to raise more money after that, which led to his next exciting adventure.
1: Yeah, we'll, and we'll get to that because there's a couple of things in here that I just found keenly interesting. So, um, you know, he bought the proxies from London investors. Um, I mean, I I thought, I, I've never seen proxies bought or sold, to be honest. I thought, well, A, there's a great market. And I especially thought of this, uh, Greg, in light of what we're talking about with, you know, shareholder votes with, you know, proxy voting services out there, Um, You know, if people thought that was enough of a conflict at some point, we could actually see a proxy market where people could, you know, sell their proxies in lieu of having the conflict. Um, So you got me really excited and kind of thinking about what that could be for today's markets um, as an example. Um, But also, Jim Fisk, he's this really interesting character. Um, He comes off as an incredibly lively person. Uh, can, Can you teach our listeners a little bit about Fisk on his
2: own? Fisk was was a master salesman. He grew up in Vermont. Uh, he made a bunch of money smuggling uh, cotton out of the south during the Civil War. He comes to Wall Street uh, thinking he can make a lot of money on Wall Street, but he tries to do it using his old tricks, which is to be a schmoozer by entertaining clients, uh, always having a an open bar, but he finds that people on Wall Street are are a lot more sophisticated than the housewives to whom he was selling dry goods up in Vermont when he was a peddler. Uh, he gets fleeced, <laughs> loses everything, goes back to Boston uh, where he worked for a while, raises some more money, comes back. But this time he has the good fortune of, of meeting Daniel Drew. And through Daniel Drew, he gets to know Gould, and he recognizes that gold is this financial genius. He aligns himself with gold. But what, Made Fisk so interesting, and what made him uh, famous in popular imagination was he was a very colorful guy. Uh, he uh, was was famous for uh, doing things like uh, he started his own militia. He marched in parades. He would do food drives and other things to to keep the Erie Railroads' uh, name in the paper and bring some positive press. He had a Notorious love affair. Uh, even though he was married, but he spoke about it openly. Uh, he dressed flamboyantly, and he he did things that Gould could never do on his own. When it came time to to hire some uh, some street brawlers to provide some protection for for Gould, uh, this was something that Gould couldn't have done on his own. Fisk had ties to the underworld. He was able to find people and. But Gould made himself a, a notorious but ultimately you know, beloved character, you know, someone like, you know, Trump in the old days, this, this larger-than-life figure that embodies the, that zeitgeist in New York at the time. Fisk with that person. He ends up uh, getting involved in a love triangle, and uh, the lover of Fisk's mistress uh, tracks him down in a hotel one night and shoots him dead. Uh, front page news, uh, Fisk's funeral was the biggest New York had ever seen, other than uh, Abraham Lincoln's.
1: So, one of the another part of the whole uh, Erie War that I loved um, that was in your story and uh, your writing. Um, so, Gould and Fisk uh, are about to flee to New Jersey across the river. Um, but in the meantime, and this is very Fisk esque uh, to use that term, um, they had to dine at Delmonico's before hopping the river to New Jersey. Um, this part of your story seemed like it could have been written in the New York Post today. <laughs> I mean, that's, I, it's a perfect Post article. Um, wh- wh- was New Jersey's role as a state in the Erie war, just kind of a state's right issue in an early Republic, because here they just go across the river to New Jersey and, and New Jersey takes pride in the Erie railroad fighting New York.
2: Yeah. There was no extradition. Uh, it it might as well have been, you know, going to Switzerland. There was nothing that New York could do to compel New Jersey to capture some fugitives and send them back over the river. Uh, Gould and his his lawyers, they knew what the law was. So, yeah, they could go to New Jersey. New Jersey was jealous of of New York's success, how the harbor was bigger than the Jersey Mm -hmm. harbor and how New York was getting bigger and bigger and Jersey was just, you know, a backwater. Um... So they gave they gave Gold, Fisk, and Drew when they were holed uh, up over there uh, everything they wanted. They agreed to let them incorporate in New uh, New Jersey, do some other things that you know would would provide them with protection. Uh, thing is, you know, Gould's family was in the city, Drew's family was in the city, Fisk's girlfriend was in the city. No one wanted to stay in Jersey, uh, so mm. they they. They weren't content to live lives of exiles, Uh, and they managed by negotiating a settlement with Vanderbilt that uh, gave Vanderbilt some of his money back to get Vanderbilt to drop the charges, and they made it back to the city.
0: I'm staying in Jersey next week. Uh, Vanderbilt now had the Central, Harlem, and the Hudson. The Erie was the only one left for his taking. You explained Gould and his colleagues became thoughtful in how they crafted their corporate defense in the media and with politicians. What was their message for keeping Erie out of Vanderbilt's hands?
2: Monopolies are bad for consumers. And by letting, <laughs> Vanderbilt, by letting Vanderbilt get control of all of them, prices would go up. So even though everyone knew that gold was bribing politicians, they thought, well, Vanderbilt's doing the same thing. And the, the populist press uh, came to came to Gould's defense, even though they thought, well, this guy is a schnook. He's at least better than than letting Vanderbilt take over everything. And, you know, there was something to that, except, of course, as soon as Gould got eerie, he uh, started talking to Vanderbilt about price-fixing arrangements. So, um, yeah, Gould was, Gould was a very effective lobbyist, uh, manipulator of the press, and he told the press what he thought the editorial writers wanted to hear, but he didn't he wasn't sincere about any of it.
0: The final bill passed in Albany made Erie illegal for Vanderbilt to own. What ensued in their meeting after that with with
2: Vanderbilt? Vanderbilt still had uh, his, the, the arrest warrant for Gould. That, that was still out there. Oh, and Vanderbilt, although he lost the legislative battle up in up in Albany, uh, the truth was that Gould and Fisk and Drew were still in contempt of a, of a court order to, uh, you know, appear uh, in New York and, uh, and face, the, the, face the music on having, uh, you know, fled New York when there was an arrest warrant for them for issuing these all this stock that they weren't supposed to do. So Vanderbilt still had some leverage uh, he was uh, meeting with Drew secretly. Uh, he thought that that Drew was 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 the power broker here, and was negotiating a settlement secretly with him. Uh, Golden Fisk found out about the meeting and barged into it, and were able to negotiate uh, a deal with Vanderbilt by by saying, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna sue you and." Uh, regardless of the merits of our case, we're going to keep you tied up in court a long time. You can either endure that or, or, or settle with us at some discount. And that's how uh, they were able to get control of the railroad.
0: Yeah, Boss Tweed was a central protagonist for Gould. Explain the influence he had in New York City politics. Tweed was able
2: to deliver votes and... New York City had a lot of votes, and his district had a lot of votes. And Tweed was able to, um, to call elections by sending out his people to uh, canvass, but also to stuff the ballot boxes and do whatever it took to win elections. So every Democratic politician in New York was beholden to, uh, to Tweed. And what he also did uh, was he would take bribes left and right and then disperse some of that money to, to people he favored. So people could take an office because uh, Tweed allowed them, and they could also get rich because of the money Tweed was giving them. So he was very powerful. Tweed was aligned with Vanderbilt, but then after the Erie fight, uh, Jim Fisk befriended Tweed and promised Tweed that he could make even more money for himself by aligning himself with Fisk and Gould. Uh, Tweed became business partners, and in return for passing favorable legislation, uh, he got some of the profits that Gould would make on his enterprises. So,
1: Gold, uh, after he got control of the Erie from Vanderbilt, uh, he manipulated the stock price of the Erie like no other. Can you explain some of the tactics he would use to, uh, you know, trade with non-public information?
2: Well, he used the same tricks that Gold uh, that that Drew did. He would uh, cut the dividend uh, when he was short the stock. He would uh, enter into he entered into this uh, price fixing deal and uh, bought the stock before he announced that deal. Uh, anything you could do mm-hmm. to to make the stock go up or down, and you would be on on the winning side of that. But if, if you were sitting in the driver's seat of a public corporation, you could do these kind of things.
1: Uh, Saturday was a trading day back in Gould's uh, time in the stock market. Um, you also explained that he used that light trading trading to his advantage,
2: and obviously this ended up catching Daniel Drew off guard. Gold uh, got fed up with Drew. Drew. Drew had betrayed him by having these secret negotiations with Vanderbilt. Uh, he had enough of Drew. He, he entered into a, a short arrangement with Drew as, as one of his confederates, selling the stock, uh, but he didn't tell Drew when he was going to put a stop to the selling and yank on the yo-yo string and get the stock to go back up. Uh, he, uh-huh. he got the stock down to as low as he thought it could go, uh, as low as uh, what he thought the, the fundamentals would allow and what investors would believe before investors started buying the stock. At that moment, he yanked uh-huh. down the string. Gold was on the, uh, Drew was on the other side. And just like Vanderbilt with the Harlem Corner and the city council, he caught Drew in a, sh- in a short squeeze. And uh, Drew, Drew was uh, destroyed by that. He came to Gold and begged for relief, said, sell me some stock, sell me some stock. Gold said no. They talked all night. Finally, Gold, uh, Drew pulled a piece of paper out of his pocket, which was evidence that Gold had looted the Erie Treasury. He said, I'm going to take this to the prosecutors if you don't let me out of the short sale. Gould said, you know, you're going to be implementing yourself if uh, you present them with evidence of fraud about me. And Drew said, you know, at this point i got nothing to lose. And Gould said, yeah, go ahead. And, you know, Gould stared him down, ultimately emerged victorious because he was able to tie up the thing in court uh, because because of Boss Tweed and the crooked judges. And Drew was destroyed. Which Google was too bad for Drew University article. out here in New Jersey, which uh, was counting on getting a lot of money from Drew, and Drew never was able to, to write the check. You
0: have a line in the book that has such rich language, quote, the government of the people and for the people was yielding to what Adams called Caesarianism, a, a society which is rich, a few rich monopolists set the rules and reap the benefits, unquote. Remind me, Greg, are we talking about the late 19th century or 2022? Are we talking about Gould? Are we talking about Bezos? This seems like it's right out of the Wall Street Journal now.
2: It does, doesn't it? And it was very prescient. Uh, And it could have been in the 1920s with with the Standard Oil Trust, with Alcoa, uh, with the monopolies that Teddy Roosevelt was going after. And it could be in our own times now. And it's funny, we have these antitrust laws, and yet... We have these giant platform companies that can control everything. Now, this guy Adams, who you mentioned, he was Charles Francis Adams. He was the grandson of John Quincy, the great-grandson of John Adams. He was kicking around for something to do after the Civil War. He didn't want to go into the family business of being a politician because he, he recognized that he didn't have the tact for that. He was... He had strong opinions and he wasn't a schmoozer and he was incapable of compromise, but he, he wanted to make a name for himself and be a success. And he he came upon this idea of making himself an expert in this new world of railroads, of its large railroads. There was no government oversight. He thought, well, there should be some government involvement here, lest we get into the situation where people like Vanderbilt become bigger than the government and threaten what John Adams and Quincy Adams fought so hard to prevent, uh, which was autocratic rule. Uh, He wrote an essay called A Chapter of Erie, which gives a blow-by-blow description of all the crooked stuff that Vanderbilt, Drew, and Gould were doing in the fight over the railroad. And he thought by exposing that, he could rouse public opinion to uh, take some action in the form of creating uh, the nation's first—it's amazing. We were talking about the lack of regulation before. It, the, the nation's first regulatory body. Uh, he wrote this essay. No one really cared, except the, the people of Massachusetts. Massachusetts was interesting for railroads because if you looked at the map, there was more railroads uh, per per square mile in Massachusetts than anywhere else. Railroads are really important for the textile trade. Massachusetts creates the Massachusetts Railroad Commission. Uh, and like I said, it was the first regulatory body in the country that had anything to do with, with business and finance. Uh, it was sort so of just, toothless. It was more of just a, you know, they gathered statistics and made recommendation. But that's what got the ball rolling. And we think of regulation having got started in the progressive era, but it really started with, with Gould and Charles Francis Adams trying to rein him in.
1: Yeah, we just had, uh, recorded a podcast uh, uh, on breaking Rockefeller with Peter Doran. And Adams had kind of touches of what later was Ida Tarbell's uh, work in, in, you know, uh, letting people know what was going on with Rockefeller. Um, so so let's go back to uh, the gold corner, uh, uh, Greg. Um, a couple things off this that I'd love for you to explain to uh, uh our listeners, you know, obviously the situa- situation went all the way to the White House, as you, you explained so eloquently in your book. Um, Gould made his argument, you know, for his bullish long um, uh, 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 position as, you know, about farmers. Um, you know, the White House is implicated. It's kind of an old anti-elitist shtick that he'd used like he had with prior with the Commodore. So teach us about the Gold
2: Corner. During the Civil War, the US went off the gold standard because they needed to raise money to pay for the war. Uh, By doing that, they created a a market for gold where the gold would fluctuate relative to the greenback price, which is what the fiat currency the US issued, uh, depending on Mm -hmm. who is winning the war. So it started out at parity. And then the the value of the dollar sunk to you know three dollars for for an ounce of gold, and then it approached parity again. And then by by the end of the war, it was I don't know around dollar uh, forty five for for an ounce of gold, something like that. Uh, and gold uh, saw an opportunity here because it was the government's intent to get off the gold standard, so. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, to get off the fiat currency and have enough gold in the system so that they could, again, start redeeming greenbacks and gold. So the tendency of the government policy was to do things to strengthen uh, the greenback uh, relative to gold. And gold thought, okay, well, that's nice, but it's deflationary. It's not helping farmers. I'm going to argue that we should do more to help farmers and you do that by elevating the gold price. Uh, gold bought a bunch of gold and saw an opportunity to lobby President Grant by aligning himself with a slimy lobbyist who had just married uh, Gould's sister and had the president's ear. So this lobbyist gets gold in front of Grant. Gold wants to bribe him. Uh, Grant is incorruptible. But he does listen to what Gould says and he finally agrees with Gould after Fisk makes the argument that you know not only is your policy of um, depressing the gold price bad for farmers and it's deflationary but it's also bad for national security because if we don't sell our gold or over- our, our corn overseas uh, the Russians are going to do it so you don't want that to happen do you mr. president and Grant decides, oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, Gould then uh, gets the New York Times to write an an editorial, or rather Gould writes an editorial, talking about how the administration wants uh, the gold price to go up. He gets the New York Times to print this, and it appears, based on how it was written, as if it was coming right from the White House itself. The gold price starts going up, Gold's in the black. It's making a lot of money. And the short sellers come out. They say, no, we don't believe it. We don't think that this is really government policy. Everything that the administration has said publicly is about how they want a weaker gold price. They want to uh, take out greenbacks. No, we don't believe this. So we're just going to short the hell out of this and break those who think that uh, it's going the other way and." Who we think are trying to manipulate the market by sending out these false rumors. What, what, what ends up happening here? It just culminates in a massive uh, uh, battle between the shorts and Gould. Gould has so much gold that if the price breaks, he's destroyed. He sends Fisk out to the floor of the gold exchange to uh, prime the pump, as it were, by buying up as much gold as he could to keep the price aloft. Now, of course, he's Mm -hmm. not buying gold. He's buying contracts that's obliging him to buy gold. He could do that with very little money down. He's successful in elevating the price so that gold could get out. But the price gets so high that the short sellers, uh, by playing along with Fisk, are able to ultimately prick the bubble when it becomes clear to everyone that Fisk is going to be able to pay up on his obligations. That's the- so Is
0: this Robin Hood or Bill Wong? I mean, who, who are we dealing with now?
1: Yeah. yeah, I also, I, real quick, Greg, um, is, on, the other, on the other side of this is Jay Cook, the famous banker. Uh, James Brown of Brown Brothers is on the other side. Um, and this is all taking place at the gold exchange um, that, that you teach your readers about. I mean, this feels like the OK Corral happening uh, in Tombstone, Arizona, but instead Manhattan, New York.
2: <laughs> yeah. And the gold exchange, it was another thing that was completely unregulated. Uh, there was self-regulation, but we know that self-regulation isn't always the, the strongest regulation. So just it all came down to animal spirits and, um, and letting, letting markets do what they do. What happens uh, went down in history as, as Black Friday, because not only did the gold market blow up, but it took down the stock exchange, it paralyzed banks, uh, there are people jumping out of windows, uh, horrible. Now, gold somehow manages to, to get out of this scot-free because he has uh, the Tammany judges in his pocket, and all sorts of people were suing him, but- He gets out of it just by tying them up in court.
0: Uh, Politics helped Gould in the end. Why did President Grant uh, not want to go about prosecuting Gould in the gold corner?
2: Grant, I don't think Grant did anything wrong here other than exercise bad judgment. But he and the other Republicans who uh, were in charge just wanted this whole story to go away. There was a hearing that was designed to flush out exactly what grant's involvement was uh, grant didn't grant had other things on his mind he didn't need more publicity being being shined on this episode. Uh, so bringing Gould down wasn't his top priority and we also have to put ourselves back in the the mindset of the time uh, nowadays. If you're, if you're a rich businessman or if you're a hedge fund manager or something, you, you, you're not a very popular person. People, don't, people look up to your money, but they don't look up to your methods and think, well, this person deserves it because he's smart and works hard. Uh, in those days, mm-hmm. it, it was just a different mentality. The, uh, people fled Europe because they wanted opportunity and they didn't want government getting in the way of what they wanted to do. And businessmen got a break. They could, you know, short of short of killing people, businessmen could do whatever they wanted. And if they were out West, they could even do that and get away with it. Um, so I, I think th- that was part of it too. Uh, there, was, there just wasn't any interest in, in keeping the story alive.
0: Gould comes off uh, uh, at times as cold-blooded. He ruins his gold cor- corner friend, Henry Smith with Pacific Mail and Chicago and Northwestern Railroad. He was willing to lose money that he gave back to Erie to ruin Smith. You have a quote from the Commodore by the media, quote, Why then do you distrust him? The reporter asked. His face, sir, said Vanderbilt, as if it was obvious. No man could have such a countenance and still be honest, unquote. Was Gould this bad or was this a Cornelius Vanderbilt that knew no one was better at the game than Gould?
2: That's interesting that you put it that way. Uh, he hated Gold because Gould made him look like a monkey. Uh, not, just, mm-hmm. not, not just for the Erie, but there's another good story here where uh, Vanderbilt tried to drive the, the Erie out of business by slashing freight rates across New York State. He cut, uh, he cut the, the rate down to nothing. And yeah, that hurt the Erie, but Gould and Fisk saw this opportunity. Well, if Vanderbilt's going to give away carriage on his trains we we'll just buy up a bunch of cows in Chicago, put them on those trains, and uh, make a huge profit by uh, not having any transportation costs. And uh, When Vanderbilt found out about this, you could just see the steam coming out of his ear. So, so Gold bettered Vanderbilt in not one, but at least two occasions, maybe even more. So he hated Gold, but asked who was the, the most capable businessman in, in New York other than maybe himself. He said, you know, Gould is the smartest one out there. And uh, Rockefeller later said the same thing. Well, Jay Cook had this vision, the Northern Pacific Railroad, and it all came crashing down when he ran into Sitting Bull. Uh, he was, his people were, were laying rails out west and the... Lakota Sioux decided. Well, we don't want these guys here, and you know, they attacked the railroad workers to the point where they just couldn't do any more work, and Cook had to admit as much to his investors. And it's 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 really interesting to see a line in an annual report that says, "Well, we had to stop construction because of of Indian raids." Uh, he goes. He ends up going bankrupt. That was a big problem because Jay Cooke was the Goldman Sachs of his day. He was the one who financed the Civil War by selling bonds to retail investors. He was the biggest uh, name on Wall Street. When he went under, everyone got nervous about their money, bank runs, you name it. The economy spins into a depression that we talked about that lasts for seven years. What that did for Gould was Gould happened at that moment to be liquid because of some things he had done uh, with the Erie. So as much as he was invested, lost a lot of money, he also was able to put a lot of money to work at at very good prices. Uh, And among other things, he got the uh, Union Pacific Railroad. Gould improved the railroad and brought it to profitability.
1: He wasn't just a stock trader, though.
2: No. No. Gould was, wasn't was someone who necessarily got his hands dirty and everything, but he was very good at keeping apprised of what was going on with his railroads and sending out notes to his people saying, you have to be more aggressive in going after this customer. You have to take costs out of this operation. Uh, you have to start uh, mining your own coal because we can save a lot of money on coal if we do it ourselves. Here's where you should mine. Gold was, from his, from his little office uh, downtown, he was everywhere. Uh, he was mm. absorbing information everywhere he could get it and then applied it to, to make more money with his railroads and the other things he was doing.
1: M- much like the excise tax that we recently saw come up uh, on buybacks, Union Pacific paying dividends was very controversial at the time. Explain what the problem was with them paying dividends. Well,
2: the the government gave them a lot of money to the the Union Pacific was the, the transcontinental railroad of, of golden spike fame. Uh, the, the U S wanted to cross the country and that got very difficult to do over the Rockies. And there was just, you know, thousands of miles that had to be covered. Once you got to, to St. Louis, um, you still had a long way to go uh, before you hit California. So Congress subsidizes the construction of this railroad, the Union Pacific, but they expect it to get eventually paid back. Uh, gold would rather take Union Pacific's profits and pay it out as dividends. And you found all sorts of reasons to delay repaying the government. The government finally had enough. Uh, they went after him. And it got really nasty, involved the Supreme Court. um, And Gould decides, okay, I've had enough of Union Pacific. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a rival to the Union Pacific, drive down the price of Union Pacific, make Union Pacific buy me, and make a lot of money that way. And using this railroad, the Kansas Pacific, did exactly that, even though it meant betraying all his friends that he had worked with for years, shoulder to shoulder at the Union Pacific. It was probably his, now, his greatest financial deal that he ever did.
1: What was this? Um, I, I think of this as kind of the turning point when everyone else in the room realized that they were dealing with a card shark because, you know, they pointed out, you pointed out in your story that they they knew it wasn't going to be good for the Union Pacific, but it seemed like it was like inevitable for these people that they knew that Gould would win in the end.
2: Yeah. They knew who they were playing with, but they also knew they couldn't beat him. At least the the smarter ones sitting around the table knew that if gold was coming after them, it was better to negotiate a peace rather than fighting to the bitter end. That's exactly what you describe.
1: Um, and by the way, for for our listeners, uh, if you want to follow on the the history of the Union Pacific Post, what we're talking about here with Greg. Another great book that talks about the later history of the Union Pacific is Inside Money by Zach Kerbal, because obviously the Brown brothers' Harriman, the Harriman family,
0: gets involved with the Union Pacific at a later date. So uh, our, our family came across on the railroads from Indiana and Kansas to Portland, Oregon in the late 1880s. So uh, how many railroads did Gould end up being a control investor in?
2: Uh, dozens. And he would, he would do it by, you know, he didn't need to own a majority of them. But he would own enough stock so that he could control it, and his his dream. And this is one of the things that I think propels the narrative forward is whether Gould will succeed in his ultimate objective, which is to create the first seamless coast-to-coast railroad. Uh, there was a patchwork. You know, you had the Erie going up to Buffalo, and then he had another railroad going from Buffalo to Detroit, and then Chicago, then down to Omaha, then the Union Pacific, and then the Central Pacific to California. Gould wanted to control the whole chain. Uh, To do that, he bought railroads everywhere he could, tried to stitch things together, and he also built more track than anyone. So between the track that he built and the track that he acquired, he owned one in every six miles of track in the U.S. There, There is no one who came close in terms of uh, controlling railroad tracks.
0: A, a footnote of your writing comes to mind. Uh, some people in a very Marxist tone would say that wealthy people or industrious like Gould don't want to improve society. Gould's adoption of the air brake run, runs contrary to this idea. How, how Explain how important this was to railroads.
2: Well, if you had a... a- a railroad accident. If, if a if a car would would hit something, all the other cars would boom, 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 boom uh, smash in in accordion like fashion behind it. The air brake, by releasing pressure, uh, gradually could could prevent that sort of pile pileup, uh, because every car had its own brake, and that was an invention of George Westinghouse. Uh, Gould saw the saw the merits of that and. You know incorporated like everyone else did uh, in those days uh, for his own railroad cars so the yeah the Marxist argument it's interesting and where you come down on gold in part comes down on where you come down on capitalism he created jobs he built a lot of railroad tracks that made it more efficient for cheaper for people to travel to ship their goods to market if you believe in capitalism Gould's a hero If you think that uh, capitalism is a way for the elite to exploit the common man and uh, keep people oppressed, then Gould is your mortal enemy.
1: Uh, Another great line from your book, Greg, and I think this is maybe the seminal line of your whole book and and it plays on the same theme we're talking about. I'm gonna quote it and then I'd love you to uh, comment on this. Quote, we do not build monuments for business people. It doesn't matter how many jobs they created. It doesn't matter how much they change the world. They have money. If they want statues, if they want people to stand before their frozen features and consider their magnificence, they can build the damn things themselves." End quote. I consider the statement to be one of the truly great parts of capitalism, to be honest. Um, why don't you think more people celebrate this sentiment that you touch on?
2: I think the, the profit motive puts people on edge, right? Because there is, there, there's a loser on every side. If if gold made more money on his railroads, you know, by cutting wages, uh, there were there were losers in that. So it it's and there's resentment, right? It's like why is this guy is just lucky. He's not smart. Why's why he? Why does he have more money than me? So it it, it gets our, our relationship with with the business class is a complicated one. Um, Whereas if someone comes up with a vaccine, it's unequivocal, the person's a hero. I think that has something to do with it. Sure. Um, So
1: Greg, we didn't talk about Edison's interactions with Gould. We didn't talk about the William Loveland episode with Gould. We didn't talk about the 1885 labor strike, which I think are all just really great stories that you pull out uh, for your readers. Um, You bring many of these parts of the journey uh, of of his life in, in the book forward for the readers. Is there anything that we haven't talked about today that you, you think does need to be mentioned uh, about your book?
2: One of the questions I, I get asked, often asked, is why don't we know more about Gould? And it gets back to something we were talking about earlier where, where he died young. Uh, Vanderbilt, endowed Vanderbilt University, Rockefeller, it's got Rockefeller University, it's got Rockefeller Center, Carnegie, got... Carnegie mm-hmm. Hall. The only thing Gould has, and I can actually see it from my office here on 57th Street, there's an auditorium in a basement nearby called Florence Gould Hall, named after a, a uh, daughter-in-law. Gould died before he had a chance to give his money away. Uh, New York University had mm-hmm. their claws into him. We're talking to Gould about a gift at the time he died. I think had he lived longer, there's a chance that New York University would now be called Gould University, and everyone would not only know his name, but would be thinking that he was this great philanthropist. That never happened, and so there's nothing to remind people of Gould in their day-to-day lives like there is with Carnegie, Vanderbilt, and Rockefeller. Well, that's awesome, and, and we we love
1: studying wealth and how it's created and, and how people propel it forward in business so we thank you again uh, greg for joining us um, if you want to understand the evolution of an entrepreneur and investor you need to go buy a copy of greg's book american rascal he weaves the context and background of the post-civil war era in america superbly by explaining who jay gould was and like we just talked about why there's no statue to admire for our audience if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend email podcast at SmeadCap.com. That's podcast at SmeadCap.com. You can also send your suggestions to us on Twitter. Our handle is at smeedcap. Thank you for joining us for A Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank
0: you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smeed Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smeet Capital Management and its products at SmeetCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.